Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Last July 14th, Iran agreed to a nuclear deal with the U.S. and other world powers that would keep the country from acquiring a nuclear weapon. Since that time, the International Atomic Energy Agency says Iran has complied with initial requirements to reduce its stockpile of uranium. In return, the U.S. and the international community have eased many economic sanctions upon Iran that has stifled the country for years. But critics say there's no guarantee that Iran will maintain the agreement long term, and they question what happens 15 years from now when the deal expires and Iran has enough enriched material to make a nuclear bomb. Those questions were raised during a panel discussion I moderated at the Hartford Club recently. It was hosted by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut in partnership with JFACT and the Jewish Federation of Greater Hartford. The panel included former U.S. Ambassador Thomas Pickering, who spent five decades as a diplomat. Ambassador Pickering has been a vocal supporter of the deal. Connecticut resident and businessman Paul Buca also was part of the discussion. He lived and worked in Iran in the 1970s, and he offered a perspective of what the deal means for Iranians. Also on the panel was John Fund, a columnist for National Review magazine and a contributor to Wall Street Journal and Fox News. He brought up points against the nuclear deal. I started the discussion with Ambassador Pickering. Why is this deal good for the U.S. and the international community? Because it uh, stops Iran from making a nuclear weapon without having to go to war to do that. We've heard critics say that uh, a bad deal is worse than no deal. How do you respond? Well, I think a bad deal is possibly worse than no deal. Uh, I've been engaged in uh, looking at the Iran deal since 2002 uh, and uh, played uh, some significant role in dealing with the uh, Iranians in a track to dialogue. And if you had asked me, could we get a deal this good four years ago, I would have said no. John Fund, if I could turn to you, um, what's your perspective? Uh, is a bad deal worse than no deal? And is this a bad deal? Well, actually, Paul and I were talking at lunch, and he said this is the best deal we could possibly get from the Iranians. And I agree with him. That doesn't mean you always take the best deal you can get if it ultimately doesn't meet your national interests. Um, I agree with Senator Schumer from New York and Senator Menendez, who was the last Democratic chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, that um, this only delays Iran's march to a nuclear weapon. It takes away the sanctions forever. The snapback is very vague and, frankly, tenuous. Uh, in order to get the inspections and the verification we need, we have to get the approval of other nations that may not well be forthcoming. We certainly see already from recent events how European nations can disagree amongst each other. There's no unanimity there. I think that something this important, something this geopolitically important, the most important foreign policy decision, I think, of the last generation, other than the Iraq war, should have been a treaty. Even when we went to war in Iraq under President Bush, he submitted it to Congress for at least a majority vote. Under this, one plus one-third of one house meant that this executive agreement went into action. I think that that is a uh, 
traduces our Constitution. It tramples on the rule of law. And I think it's a bad precedent. If you don't believe me, just imagine the kind of executive agreements that a President Donald Trump might want to ram through. <laughs> we do this at our peril, create an imperial presidency. Ambassador, how do you respond uh, to John Fund's points? Well, I think John's got his own set of facts here, uh, which, in my humble opinion, don't accord with reality. I think that the snapback is part of a broad agreement that included the five permanent members of the Security Council. It's put in place with a resolution that comes automatically into force when we ask for it. Uh, nobody else can block it. I think John's right that um, all of these pieces are there. Uh, other countries may choose not to follow, but they do that at their peril. Uh, and particularly because we have the capacity uh, with the dollar in the world today and for the foreseeable future in a situation like this uh, to be able to determine whether people do business with us or do business with Iran. And so I see very little difficulty in that, particularly if the snapback comes, as it will, uh, if there is a serious violation on the part of Iran. Uh, so I think that point is very important. The notion of whether this treaty is an advice and consent treaty or an executive agreement uh, is a prerogative of the president. The president had a deal with the Congress made by uh, the Republican chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that there would be a time limit on congressional consideration uh, and that it was up to the Republicans to produce the votes to get a deal. Uh, I thought the president would have a struggle uh, in finding uh, enough loyal Democrats to stick with him on this uh, to prevent a veto. Uh, it turned out in the end that he had enough loyal Democrats to stick with him on this uh, to prevent the use of cloture. Uh, and so there was no legislation at all. Uh, and the deal went through on that basis. But it went, base, went through on the basis of the rules of the United States Senate. They were not changed for this deal. Uh, they were part of our legislative history. Uh, and indeed, uh, while uh, Majority Leader McConnell wanted to change the rules, uh, he decided in the end not to because the rules apply uh, for both parties, depending upon who's in power. They are not a set of Democratic rules or a set of Republican rules, and I think that that's important. Uh, the important part here is that since November uh, 24th, 2013, when the first agreement went in effect, uh, the international monitors representing many countries uh, continue to report on a regular basis that Iran is in compliance. And in my view, that's extremely important. If Iran were not in compliance, we would have a, a difficult problem uh, and a bad agreement, maybe, but we don't. Uh, how long that will keep up, I cannot tell you to predict, but I think Iran knows that it will not get uh, the money it's counting on getting back if it doesn't comply. And interestingly enough, there were many opposed to the agreement uh, who were certain that on day one when the sanctions were released, Iran would get something like $150 billion and that $110 billion of that would go for disruption in the Middle East. The truth is that Iran has gotten, <clears throat> since uh, November uh, of 2013, up until the time this agreement began, $18 billion. And I know of no intelligence community, and there would have been a leak on this, that indicates that Iran has stepped up its nefarious activities as a result of the $18 billion. Iran has gotten, since the comprehensive plan of action is in place, $6 billion of the putative $150 billion around the world. 
Uh, this is a problem uh, for the agreement uh, because those in Iran who support the agreement are those in Iran who are going to be asked to produce uh, for Iran uh, the return to their economy uh, that the combination of sanctions, bad management by President Ahmadinejad, and the oil price decline have produced to put the pressure on Iran to get them to uh, come to the agreement and to agree with what it was that uh, we insisted had to be the bottom line on the table. Well, let's talk about the people in Iran. Um, obviously, there's a reason that uh, we mistrust the Ira Iranian regime, but Paul, you lived and spent time doing business in Iran. Tell us about the people. What's in it for them that this deal needs to succeed? Well, the first thing is uh, there's 82 million of them. And people draw analogies between our negotiations with Iran and North Korea. Just that alone says that there's absolutely no comparison between the two. And in any population, Reza Aslan, one of the speakers that came before the World Affairs Council several years ago, pointed it out, that in every population there are people who would be considered extremists, others would be considered uh, very conservative, and then there's the people that go to work every day trying to pay the bills. The moderates? Uh, I wouldn't even say they're moderates because they represent an inclination that they're just too busy to get involved in the other two extremes, I think. And um, my experience was I went to Iran uh, at the request of a businessman to consider taking over the administration of the entire social welfare system of Iran. Uh, the Persians gave us five months to stand it up, even though no one had ever dealt with computers before. This is important because the federal government has given the Department of Veterans Affairs here 15 years to stand up a system that would serve nine million as opposed to at that time 74 million. The Persians had very high expectations. They were very well educated. We have created an image of the Persians that serves our narrative that's unfair, unrealistic. One of the things that's not mentioned in all the debate on this particular agreement is that once the sanctions get lifted and the probability of prosperity returns, there are 80, instead of the 82, 80 million people who would be impacted. The vast majority are under the age of 20. And that is the greatest curb on excise, excism, extremism, rather, of the Persian government. We never, ever gave it credit for what it was at one time. And in fact, before we get too carried away on right and wrong, probably wouldn't be bad for America to go back and relive the history of the 1970s and our role in creating that which we find today. We interfered in the appointment of officials. We interfered in the way people were treated. We decided we did not like the fact they had one party, even though there really wasn't one party. It was two wings not unlike what we have in the United States government, Democrats and Republicans, essentially forming one government. And we created this narrative that they were the ones that were destabilizing everything in those days. They were the ones that interfered in government. They have a long history with the United States where we have been the one that's been the person that interfered. And it's very important not to forget that because once you start dealing with what you have, you first have to ask, how did we get here? And you can't blame that on the Persian people. Most important thing, I think, from this perspective right now is that 
in John's comments and Tom's comments. The alternative to the deal that was being spoken about in those days was war. We never heard, nor did we hear the press play up the facts that in Israel itself, Mayor Degan, the longest serving Mossad, former chief of staff of the army, went to the prime minister in Israel and said, stop talking about an airstrike. We cannot do that given international rules without the United States being the supporter. The loiter time of an airplane that arrives in Iran is so short you would accomplish nothing and we don't have the technology to do what you're claiming anyway. That didn't get presented by anybody when Netanyahu visited here. And he wasn't the only one. There were countless Israeli defense officials saying war is not an option. So that's the one difference is when someone says this is the best deal you can get, it's the best deal because it stops the march to war. And if anyone doubts that there is an inclination to go to war in the Middle East, the record is proven that we were willing to commit lives, treasury and blood, as they say, to achieve regime change and stop internal politics. Not one reporter that I have heard has come back saying the way we did it, what we achieved, and was it worth it would say yes, it was. Stieglitz and Linda Belmas have come up with its four to seven trillion dollars, including the legacy cost of that war. That was the alternative we had to stop. To his credit, I think we can give President Obama some of the uh, some praise here. I think the real stop to the march of war when he, was when he made it very clear in no uncertain terms to the Israelis, you're not going to launch any kind of attack against Iran with our permission or our cooperation. And I think, I was in Israel recently, and that was a cold, hard stop on that. I don't think it was the agreement. I think it was President Obama's decision to tell the Israelis, you're not going to attack. I think this making this a choice of deal or war is a rather binary, um, apocalyptic, you know, yes or no, light switch on or off scenario. Uh, that's not the case. Well, from my perspective, I disagree on that because I believe that the uh, record would show when we were going to Iraq, people had the same thing, that we a president of the United States, but the Congress followed. You talked about the process by which the Congress gets involved. The Congress, not the president, the Congress was leading the march. The Congress always led the march to go. Why they were led by a narrative that wasn't necessarily Congress, true, Congress and I believe. Is, Congress is not going to initiate anything in foreign policy without the active cooperation and approval of the president. You know that. I disagree as to where the narrative was going, and I think that's important because you were talking about the process and that you should go and I'll take the Congress the and let them vote. But I'm saying right now, anybody who's been to D.C. in the last two months, try to accomplish anything that's down there, I, if I were the President of the United States, I would say it's a much more logical thing instead of throwing it open to the debate and the, de and the vote that's there. They can't even come together today. We can't even come together today. Do you today. disagree that President Obama told the Israelis you will not attack Iran? I don't think he had to because they didn't well, have the did. wherewithal to do that. I don't think he had okay. the wherewithal to do it. That's the message that Dagon said to all of us. We cannot. We cannot execute what you're claiming we're going to do with not only the president saying yes, we have to provide the refueling mechanisms. 
We have to provide the guidance systems. Exactly. We have to do that. So it's not just the president saying no. It was the impossibility of the wherewithal. And that's the thing that got forgotten in this. Everybody was saying, we want better. What the people have proposed as the alternative agreement is an agreement that is achieved when you have defeated an enemy. You will give up your sovereignty. You will do what we tell you to do. We will do these things. That was what the alternative was being described at. And if you say those people knew we would not go to war, you're not going to get a sovereign nation in, in, in the world to accept the sanctions that were going to be, not the economic sanctions, but the sanctions on just the way they operated as a country. 82 million people would have come together to oppose that. Now we have 80 million people saying, let's come together and hope these, this Iran deal, as it's been promised to us, can bring the prosperity we once had. That's the critical part for us. That's Paul Buca, who worked as a businessman in Iran in the 1970s. He was one of the panelists during a discussion hosted by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut about the Iran nuclear deal. Coming up, we'll hear more from him, as well as Ambassador Thomas Pickering and John Font, a columnist for National Review magazine. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we bring you a conversation about the Iran nuclear deal. It's been one year since the country reached the agreement with the U.S. and other world powers. Recently I moderated a panel discussion about the deal that touched on concerns about the implementation to broader global implications. The panel included former U.S. Ambassador Thomas Pickering, and I asked him about the goals of the agreement. Remind us again, beyond keeping Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon, what else is in it for the international community that this deal succeed when we look at the destabilization that's happened in that region? Well, I think that first and foremost, it was a nuclear deal. There are many people who have complained, well, there are not missiles taken care of, or we didn't do human rights, or we didn't do support for Hamas and Hezbollah. And I think the first point to make is that uh, the Bush administration and the Obama administration totally agreed that the nuclear question was so important, and just to add a brief code of what we've just heard, uh, President Obama made very clear that he would use military force to prevent a weapon if he had to. But that wasn't his first choice. It was his last choice, as opposed to Iraq, uh, that that was going to be, in effect, a situation where he had to exhaust the diplomatic alternatives before we did that. So uh, let let me go on and just say that this agreement is not about Uh, other things. Uh, And while uh, people after the agreement say, well, well, we should have done this or we should have done that, um, it was very clear the Bush and Obama administration both agreed uh, that we would pay an extra price in what we wanted to get to limit Iran's nuclear program if we had to get all these other things in the agreement. The other interesting fact was that until about five years ago or four years ago, the Iranians wanted this grand bargain, I think in part because they knew they could dumb down the nuclear piece perhaps and get a little more running room on the nuclear piece than they got. Uh, But they changed their mind because the sanctions question, uh, the economic uh, difficulties they had, and the oil price decline made it very clear that their regime felt threatened uh, with, in fact, a declining and seriously eroded economy if they didn't stop that and move ahead and deal with the issue. Uh, And to throw all the other things into the mix 
meant that the agreement would have taken them a great deal more time, perhaps uh, at much greater risk. So I think that's important. Let me just say something about the deal. Uh, we've been talking about all the peripheries. What's wrong with it? What's right with it? Whether we should go to war or not go to war. All of that's important. The deal has three parts, and it's very simple, despite the fact that it's a long and extensive document. Part number one is limits on Iran's nuclear program. Essentially, to agree that they can have a civil program, but they cannot do things in the civil program that take them over the border toward nuclear weapons. And that means they cannot have highly enriched uranium or separated plutonium. Uh, and the deal takes care of that because it says for 15 years, they can have no more than 300 kilograms of very low enriched uranium. Not enough even if you could upgrade it in a hurry or slowly uh, to give them anything like the capacity to have a nuclear weapon. Secondly, it has perhaps the most far-reaching, innovative, extensive uh, monitoring and verification uh, ever accepted uh, by a country. And so uh, for the first time, we have the technical capacity, the international community is the we here, uh, to monitor real time Iranian enrichment and know what they're, being, what they're making minute by minute in terms of the output of those enrichment programs. And that's all done technically. We, for the first time, have inspected not only uh, all of their facilities, but we inspect their facilities making centrifuges. So we have reason to believe that we would know if they have a program uh, somewhere hidden uh, because they make their centrifuges in two or three places. Uh, and those places are under regular monitoring. Uh, and we have the way through our intelligence backup of reinforcing that uh, if they start making centrifuges other places, and we have good confidence in that. So those kinds of things are important. Finally, uh, we have introduced control so that any one of the parties negotiating with Iran can object to any import Iran wishes to make that has any relationship to the nuclear program so that we can block things that they cannot make uh, but bring in from outside, including raw materials of special qualities uh, that they could use or could be uh, uh, perhaps misused uh, to move toward a nuclear weapons program. This has never been done before. No country's ever accepted that before. And these are just three examples of what we've done there. Finally, there's sanctions relief. And we've talked about sanctions relief. And I heard all around, particularly at the time the agreement came into effect and the debate took place in the Congress, that the $150 billion was going to flow overnight into Iran, and they were going to spend large amounts of money. We talked about that. Uh, actually, they've gotten very little money uh, so far. Uh, and that's hazarding the agreement. But we're working, uh, I think, in a plausible way with the Europeans and the rest of the world banking community to try to take away some of the reasons why that banking community is very nervous. Some of that had to do with the fact that when they misbehaved with past sanctions, they were fined very heavily. Uh, we're not going to change that. And as you all know, uh, the sanctions that are on Iran with respect to human rights, support for terrorist organizations, and other kinds of activities that were not nuclear are in effect. Uh, so uh, if I were to say today that no American company is allowed to do any direct business with Iran under the currently existing sanctions after the nuclear agreement is in place, 
with the exception of those dealing in a very limited way with aviation, uh, that would be the truth. Did you all know that? Did any of you understand that? Did you think that uh, all American firms could arrive in Tehran and just do business? They can't. Uh, we have those specific continued restrictions. Now, it may mean we're going to lose some business to the Europeans or to the Chinese or somebody else, but that's the, that's the, that's the decision we made because the agreement did not cover human rights uh, and other questions, terrorism, about which we have very strong feelings, and therefore we need to keep the pressure on. So that's a brief roundup of the agreement, its features, uh, and why I think it still represents uh, an extremely good agreement uh, in, in terms that my colleagues have talked about it, uh, probably the best agreement we could have achieved under the circumstances. We're going to be turning it over to audience questions in just another minute, but I wanted John to respond sure. to the ambassador. Um, well, let's be clear. The Iranians have a long history of violating and breaking agreements. Since this deal was done, since the deal was done, they have launched ballistic missile tests that are in clear violation of a UN Security Council edict. That is not in dispute. So they're already breaking things outside of the strict framework of the agreement. The ambassador... Can I just raise that? That happens not to be true. There is no edict any longer. The Security Council resolution which forbade military uh, missile tests, uh, which they did break, I don't disagree with you at all, John, disappeared. Uh, and a more hortatory set of languages was used. They're encouraged not to test missions. So, uh, you, you, I rest my case. Yeah, no, but this was not a deal that was designed to stop missile tests. Look. And neither Bush nor Obama put that in. Let's have some clarity here. You remember what I told you, CTHD, clarity, transparency, honesty, and disclosure. Well, let's have some here. Take out your map. Abadan is a city here in the corner of Iran. Abadan is the launching spot for basically a shuttle service to Damascus. Iran Air, constant flights, and I assure you not that many people are going for tourism. This deal was about other things as well. It was about business. We just have the news of Boeing's historic deal with Iran. $25 billion buying jets. Boeing makes great planes. $25 billion is a lot of money. There are 100 people in this room. That's $250 million for every one of the people sitting in this room. $250 million. Now, why is this of concern? Well, as we know, Iran is the leading state sponsor of terrorism in the world. Uh, Yemen, Assad in Syria, Hezbollah in Lebanon, directed and supported attacks against American troops in Iraq. There are real concerns in the intelligence community, and I spoke to people yesterday about this, that these jets that Boeing has and is selling to Iran Air, we have a proven record that these jets are used in the past to transfer weapons, soldiers, and other sophisticated equipment to Syria, to Assad, to kill people. And he's killed half a million of his citizens. Five years ago, the Obama administration put sanctions on Iran because of the misuse of civilian aviation to send Assad weaponry. 
and the weaponry included even titanium, which is used for extremely sophisticated weapon systems. Now, I served with the Wall Street Journal for 27 years. I'm in favor of consenting capitalist acts between consenting adults. <laughs> but I also believe in disclosure and transparency. A lot of money is being made on this. $25 billion is a lot of money. And Ambassador Pickering didn't bring this up first. He, didn't, I, he brought this up first. He mentioned aviation. Maybe the ambassador should finally mention, because he's been silent for two years on this subject, and longer even, what his role is with Boeing and how much money he has received from Boeing for this $25 billion deal that has just transpired. Oh, the answer to that is simple, zero. That's not what you told the Daily Beast. Before we get in an argument the over... The Daily over. Beast did not record what I had to say. Before we go any further, I just <laughs> on that one, I read the same article. And the, in the, the article also says that if you were to ship armaments sure. and soldiers to Syria, you wouldn't use brand-new Boeing aircraft. Boeing aircraft. And, or and that, Air, that's or Airbus. But, but the thing that they I think... bigger cargo holds. Excuse me. Just, there is an aspect of my life that I think is important. After I left Iran, I kept getting communications and calls to come see, for example, Kazai, the ambassador to the UN from Iran, to talk. They were looking for a back channel because we weren't talking to each other. And one thing that this agreement does, it puts Persians and people from other nations side by side who are well-educated, very sophisticated, who do not want the risk of what we are heading to. They have been very, and the question I was asked was, can you come together and bring people to start a back channel? And it occurred. We had a back channel until people opposed to any kind of dialogue with Iran, came down very hard on it. And the sad part was, they were talking about how to identify the bad actors in that part of Afghanistan where the people speak Farsi. And there was a group in the United States that did not want that to go ahead, a government agency. And I'm saying is that I think one of the things we miss in this is, regardless of what this is the subject matter of an agreement, the fact that you came together and discussed in this world of instantaneous communications, this agreement puts Americans, Europeans, side by side with Persians whenever they want to inspect, but also when they're doing business. And when they're doing business, they're talking. And I said in the beginning, and I say it again, the 80 million, put the 2 million of the, the malcontents, the 80 million people living in Iran are looking for a peaceful future. They're looking for a way to keep out of a sanctioned environment. This agreement gives us that opportunity. I was accused of an inaccuracy, and I just want to mention an email that Ambassador Pickering said to the Daily Beast, and it quotes as follows. I was a Boeing employee from 2001 to 2006. I was a direct consultant to Boeing from 2006 until December 2015, when my contract for consulting was moved to Hills & Company for my work. I did not say you directly received money for the Iran deal but you worked for Boeing, you have testified on behalf of this agreement, you have written op-eds in the Washington Post, and you have worked for Boeing. My biography was written by Boeing, distributed through Boeing, indicated my employment with Boeing. There was never any effort to hide that. 
Every piece of effort I made on Capitol Hill had nothing to do with Boeing. Boeing never compensated for it. My compensation was arranged on a project-by-project basis. There was no salary and no retainer for being a consultant. You're listening to a panel discussion on the future of the Iran nuclear deal, one year after the country reached agreement with the U.S. and the international community. We'll have more after a short break. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, U.S. immigration officials say their first priority is to deport dangerous people from the country. But what happens when the government fails to do just that? We explore the case of Haitian national Jean-Jacques, who was recently convicted of murdering a Norwich woman after he completed a prior state prison sentence for attempted murder. Coming up Thursday on Where We Live. Today, we're bringing you a recent panel discussion that I moderated on the future of the Iran nuclear deal. It was hosted by the World Affairs Council in partnership with JFACT and the Jewish Federation of Greater Hartford. The panelists included former Ambassador Thomas Pickering, National Review magazine columnist John Fund, and Paul Buca, a Medal of Honor recipient who lived and worked in Iran in the 1970s. Here they are taking questions from the audience at the Hartford Club. President Bush in 2008, on the 60th anniversary of Israel, Uh, told the leadership not to strike Iran because at that time they wanted to. So we have to pull in the facts. It wasn't just President Obama. Secondly, a lot of times people in the audience get confused about the whole notion of what a rational actor is. And so if you say that the Islamic Republic of Iran is a rational actor, a lot of times people say, how could you be rational when you're irrational in, in the fact that you lead in terrorism, you do these things? Can one of you or all of you please give a proper definition and then explain and answer, is Iran a rational actor? Maybe I can take on the latter because the former was a statement about who suggested not to use military force. And I'm delighted that you raised the fact that two American presidents, one serving and one uh, past his service, has raised that particular question. I think a rational actor is often defined by people who are motivated to move in what they perceive to be their national interest in the, in the, in the international world. Uh, and I think uh, no less authority than the director of U.S. national intelligence in a report that he prepared in 2007, but continues to be reaffirmed, at least on an annual basis in his appearance from Congress, thought that Iran was a rational actor, I think he said rationally motivated, or words to that effect. I don't know that it carries with it any other connotation. Uh, countries perceive their national interests in whatever ways uh, they choose to perceive them and then act as if they were uh, designed to promote their, uh, their national interests. I think one can say, for example, that very few countries would undertake to precipitate a nuclear war with the United States and that that would be rational action. There's a question in the front, and I think there's some over here. Going back to a reality check, as to whether there was a a better deal available. The critics of the deal uh, have, to the extent that they've been specific, have held out that if we had continued international sanctions and strengthened international sanctions, that a better deal, a tougher deal, could have been achieved. I'd be very interested in the panel's comments as to whether that was realistic. Well, let me take a fly at the answer to that and and um, tell you that when the deal was completed, uh, at the invitation of Congress, the ambassadors 
of the five other countries that participated alongside the United States in the negotiation went to the Congress. And each one of them answered on behalf of their government that they would not support the continuation of additional sanctions because they were satisfied with the deal that had been achieved. Uh, without their support, it is very hard for me to believe that additional sanctions would have been useful or effective. In terms of breakout, though, if there had been no deal, wasn't Iran two to three months out? Well, I, I think that that's a different issue. That has to do with the substance of the deal. The, the deal, in the view of almost everybody who watched it and is associated with it, uh, was sufficiently strong that a time to break out before the deal of three to six weeks was lengthened in the view of almost everybody who's commented on it, I think without exception, to over a year. So it meant that the deal put in place a set of arrangements for the time periods that are in the deal uh, that in fact gave us an assurance that Iran would not be able to use their civil uh, nuclear infrastructure to make a nuclear weapon, actually just to make the fissile material to be inside a nuclear weapon, not to complete the whole weapon or to test it or to modify it to go on a missile. To make a crude nuclear device perhaps would have taken longer, but one year for the fissile material. Yeah, one other thing, you're absolutely correct to, to ask the questions about where the uh, Europeans were on this, were they willing to wait. While we were negotiating, a, a Persian friend of mine was showing a French company through some oil fields so they could get a better feel for what was required to bring to repairs up to date and things like that. I don't think that they were even willing to discuss the concept that they would not go back to this marketplace. And I think that we, for again, a narrative that we preferred to hear, that wasn't part of it. It was common knowledge with people dealing with Iran that the Europeans were ready to go, ready to come back and to start working with them, and I think it's because they did not have the narrative we had that started with the specific Iranian-American confrontation that ended up with our hostages. They were, they were allowed to go around that, and they stayed in contact through the years. But there wasn't one firm that I knew of from Switzerland, Germany, France, England, Italy, wasn't ready to go if just given the, the go-ahead, and they got permission from their governments to go back and visit, at least start the discussions while we sat here alone. I agree with the ambassador that our European allies did tell us that about their lack of interest in sanctions after the deal was effectively done. But there was a path not taken. Um, last month I was at the Asia Society, and I sat next to Hussein Mosavian, who now teaches in the U.S., but he was the first Iranian arms negotiator. And he, of course, filled me with very moving and very sympathetic stories of all the suffering the Iranian people have experienced because of sanctions. And I have been to Iran, and I, I mourn for the Iranian people and their plight. However, he also said, yes, he agreed with the ambassador. Their economy was falling apart. The price of oil had fallen to $40, $30 a barrel. It's interesting that just at the point where the Iranian economy was really hurting, 
where perhaps other pressures, such as the fact that Iran doesn't refine its own gasoline and those imports could have been restricted and with means well short of military intervention. It's interesting that there were alternatives to this administration, which originally said, we will dismantle Iran's nuclear program. That was the promise John Kerry made in February 2013. There were other paths not taken and that might have had some promise given the fact that Iran's economy really was falling apart last year and the year before. How does this uh, agreement and uh, continued growth in relationships on the business side help uh, diversify the electorate so that we actually have some form of free speech in Iran where the mullahs and others have a tight grip on things and by giving them more money, at least I would argue, that makes that less of a likelihood of happening in the near future. When people, and this is part in response to John too, as people get to the very bottom and what you ask for them is to capitulate your sovereignty, to give us the right to go anywhere, anytime, whenever we please, for example, that the poorest among them will grab hold of the strongest and say no. There is a certain element of national pride and we underestimate that in Iran. And just to give you this moderate concept, there was a poet named Ansari, long, long, long ago from Iran, who wrote, travel is the wealth of mankind. Jewels left in the mine are worthless. That's not something that we would give credit as to this country we call Iran today because of the limited number of people we interface with who are the hardcore. But I would submit to you that there is this kind of a feeling because it's a proud country with a rich culture, tremendous uh, interconnection with our Judeo-Christian society. There's this rich Persian relationship that we can have, and that is not something that the Revolutionary Guards are necessarily interested in perpetuating. But the 80 million others are. And I would just suggest we have forgotten them in this entire debate. They are the people that we can rely on. You know, Paul has said it, I think, more wisely and, and uh, more succinctly than, 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 than I could. But let me just add one example. Uh, in the early 1980s, Iraq fairly clearly attacked Iran. Uh, Iran had come out of the revolution. Uh, there was a lot of discontent. There was a lot of violence in Iran uh, and to perpetuate the revolution. If there was ever a time when a, an internal discord could have emerged from the surface and become a problem of national survival for the revolutionaries, it was certainly then. There was not. Uh, and large numbers of Iranians sacrificed themselves for their country. Uh, and uh, whatever there may have been of internal disruption and discord, was more sublimated by the war than it was, put it this way, excited by that war. They rose to the defense of their country, uh, and as Paul said, uh, their language, their history, their poetry, all of the things that bind them together became the sinews which held them together in that set of circumstances. As interested as I am in finding the mythical Iranian moderate unicorn, I'm interested <laughs> in finding the U.S. nuclear military intelligence program that actually knows when the Iranians will be breaking the agreement. This is Senator Menendez, the last Democratic chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Quote, the U.S. track record in detecting and stopping countries from going nuclear 
Well, we missed the Soviet Union, China, India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. We underestimated Saddam Hussein's program in 1990. Then we overestimated his program in 2003 and went to war to stop a non-existent WMD program. The ambassador and I can have legitimate disagreements about whether or not the snapback on sanctions can work. My question is, why should we trust our intelligence agencies to know what the, when the, what the Iranians are doing and when they are doing it? We have time for one more question, I think. So, Amanda. Uh, hi, thank you. Um, my question is, what is going to happen 10 to 15 years down the road when the various parts of this agreement are no longer in effect? And that's a good question to end. I'll start with you, Ambassador. Sure. M my view is that it is a serious limitation in the agreement and that we should be paying a great deal more attention to it. Uh, and that, in my view, should come very quickly. Uh, my proposal in this regard, which I've made before, but I'll make briefly again, is that we should take the elements of the Iran agreement, particularly those that relate uh, to uranium and enrichment and to handling plutonium, uh, and we should adopt those as the international gold standard. That may be the best that we can get. And that should begin with the five nuclear countries, all of whom have committed themselves unilaterally now for over 15 or 20 years not to make any new fissile material for use in nuclear weapons. It's a unilateral statement, but everybody from China, France, Britain, Russia to the United States has committed themselves to that. And we ought to use the Iranian agreement basis to put that in the form of an agreement. And we five should be the first to accept it. Uh, and it would codify the moratorium but it would allow us also to have an inspection system which would give us higher sense of, uh, put it this way, confidence, not perfect, higher sense of confidence that that was working. Uh, the important piece to that on the Iranian side would be we would in effect be making this into a new agreement with Iran as a major piece of it that would not have time limits. And I think this would be a useful forward step. I think, in addition, maybe multilateral ownership of enrichment facilities would be important, too, to provide more transparency. And then countries like Brazil or Taiwan or South Korea uh, or Argentina who may want to make uh, an enrichment facility, even for civil purposes, would be put into a position where they would be, if I could put it this way, part of the new way uh, of managing enrichment so that it could not be misused, or we would have created uh, the strongest, uh, put it this way, roadblocks in the way of misuse. And I think that's valuable because it would deal uh, with a, a loophole in the present system of nonproliferation that exists in the world. Paul, 10 to 15 years I, um, I'll look at a lesson that I proposed for another country, and I would say it for Iran. I couldn't understand why we had a boycott telling those Cubans who left here in a dinghy, left their country in a dinghy and became millionaires, why they couldn't go back to Cuba. I couldn't understand what we were afraid of. We now have an agreement with Iran. I don't know what we're afraid of. As far, they're not an existential threat to us, uh, that the war that which the ambassador referred to. Or Israel? To, uh, or to Israel. Okay. Um, the, the two most powerful armies that we're worried about, Saddam Hussein's and Iran, met on a border, trying to push the other one half a football field off the border. Each lost about a million people. That is not an existential threat 
to the fifth, fourth most powerful military on the planet. They can't project force. ISIS is not a friend of Tehran, Iran. They're Shia and Sunni. That's still going on. I think we, if we would just say we have an agreement, let's make it an active agreement. Let's meet. Let's be robust in our interaction. Let's work together. And these things don't happen with one agreement and then the next agreement. But rather, you set in place a series of agreements on the most insignificant minutiae. And it grows in, as it accumulates. And pretty soon, you've got a huge agreement. But it becomes an understanding for a future way of life. Not just, I got an agreement. Let's put it in my pocket and wait and see what the clock says. You have to be robust in how you support these agreements. And I believe Iran has a background and a foundation that would be receptive to a robust relationship with this country, especially when the supreme leader says under no circumstances. I believe the so 80 we, million will say, yes, we can. Go well, ahead. if the current regime is still in power in 15 years and there has been no major change, I think we all know what's going to happen in 15 years. I do agree there's a chance of a change, but they've been in charge now for 37 years and counting. Let's talk about before 15 years are up. It was the considered judgment of Senator Schumer and Senator Menendez that this agreement effectively, real practical terms, extended our advance notice of a successful Iranian nuclear breakout if they chose to do it during, under the terms of the agreement, extended our warning of that from three months to 12 months. That's an improvement. I just think we gave up an awful lot for a mess of pottage. That's all. That's John Fund, a columnist for National Review magazine. He was part of a panel discussion exploring the Iran nuclear deal one year after the agreement was reached. Former Ambassador Thomas Pickering and businessman Paul Buca rounded out the discussion at the Hartford Club June 29th. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. You can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.